If we don't vaccinate around the world, as we should, it will come back to haunt us and it will come back to hurt us. She's one of the most powerful women in the world. So what does Christine Lagarde, president of the European Central Bank, see as the most vital thing to enable the world to recover from the pandemic? To move to this new normal, we need to anticipate and vaccinate. And then we need to learn the lessons of what we have just gone through. I am baffled by the fact that the entire global community cannot put together $50 billion in order to address vaccination in those countries of the world where only 2% of the population is vaccinated, the low-income countries. Lagarde, a former International Monetary Fund chief, sat down with the World Economic Forum for a wide-ranging talk covering huge global issues, from COVID to climate change. Even before a way of life, we need life. If we don't preserve that, we do have major threats on the horizon that could cause the death of hundreds of thousands of people. And the guardian of the euro had a thing or two to say about those upstarts, cryptocurrencies. All cryptocurrencies are not currencies at all. Call a spade a spade. An asset is an asset, has to be regulated as such, but should not claim that it is a currency. It is not. Radio Davos is the podcast that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. Subscribe, leave us a rating and review, and find us at the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. Join me, Robin Pomeroy, as I listen in to World Economic Forum founder and executive chairman Klaus Schwab chatting with Christine Lagarde. This is Radio Davos. Christine Lagarde ranks at number two on Forbes' top 100 most powerful women in the world, just behind German Chancellor Angela Merkel and ahead of US Vice President Kamala Harris. As head of the European Central Bank, she oversees monetary policy for 19 European Union countries, the ones that use the euro, such as Germany, Italy and her native France. Before becoming the first woman to head the European Central Bank, she headed the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and before that held senior posts in the French government. She sat down for a Zoom chat with Klaus Schwab, founder and executive chairman of the World Economic Forum, and had plenty to say about how the world has responded to the COVID pandemic, what central banks can do to combat climate change, and what she thinks of cryptocurrencies. Klaus Schwab started by asking Christine Lagarde how she saw the world getting back to normal post-COVID-19. Let me sort of take us back to uh, what we have gone through, because I think that what we have gone through in the last two years is actually going to determine how we transition towards a new way of conducting ourselves in all respects. So what we've gone through was a massive shock to the global economy uh, that hit us in the face and actually made us realize that life, health, mattered actually a lot more than uh, the economy and finance, at least in the short run. And there was clearly, as opposed to back during the great financial crisis in 2008, a determination to focus on restoring health, securing income for people whenever that was possible, and trying to cure that pandemic that had just fallen on the world uh, as it did, totally unexpected. And when we look back at how we dealt with it, of course, there were, there were a few hiccups to begin with. But in the main, overall, policymakers did a good job at addressing the issues by reacting very promptly, very forcefully, and certainly because you asked about the European Central Bank and what central banks can do, with massive response in terms of liquidity, 
in terms of availability of currencies that were sought by all economic players, and in terms of sustainability of those plans to help with the financing of the economy. So that shows, I think, one thing which I take some confidence in, which is that we learned from the previous crisis. We learned that we could not procrastinate. We learned that we could not go slow. We learned that we could not phase in. We learned the hard way at the time, but we went into this one very strongly. Uh, you know, there's a big story in stock market, which is that you, you either go big or you go home. Well, we certainly all went big in order to fight what was happening. By the same token, we adopted very strange measures, you know, locking down entire populations, shutting down the economy. I mean, those were almost medieval ways of dealing with this pandemic. And then, thanks in many ways to globalization, and I'll be happy to expand on that, we came up in next to no time with vaccination, which is something that was unheard of. From a pandemic that started in February, we had vaccines available in December. Unheard of because typically it takes more than five years to experiment a successful vaccine. This time, it was nine months as opposed to five years. In addition to supporting the recovery, we have to anticipate. And by that, I mean, we have to vaccinate. Because if we don't vaccinate around the world, as we should, it will come back to haunt us and it will come back to hurt us. So vaccination around the world is the best way to anticipate what could come back in the form of new variants, in the form of additional contagion. And to do that, the world needs to be a little bit more generous. And in being generous, it will be self-serving its own interest. So as, as you know well, I am baffled by the fact that uh, the entire global community cannot put together $50 billion in order to address vaccination in those countries of the world where only 2% of the population is vaccinated. By that, I mean the low-income countries. We have spent in fiscal support $6,000 billion, $6,000 billion. What is needed is 1% of that in order to vaccinate the world. So I think that to move to this new normal, um, whether one likes the word or not of new normal, we need to anticipate and vaccinate. And then we need to learn the lessons of what we have just gone through. And I think the world that we will live in will bear the stigmas of COVID. Christine, you mentioned that we have to learn from the crisis and we have to think big and we should act fast. Now you could apply the same principle also to climate change. And if we look at the latest IPC report, we are not anymore in a situation where we fight climate change, we may have already irreversible damage done to our nature. My question would be, what can institutions like the ECB and other central banks do to make monetary policy 
really contribute to a healthier life and healthier planet. Many people are afraid it costs us and it means a reduction of our style of life, of our quality of life. Can we combine the drive towards the green economy with economic growth? There are some traditional thinkers who believe that central banks should altogether stay out of that business and exclusively concentrate on inflation and price stability. I strongly disagree with that myself. We have now uh, wrapped up and concluded our strategy review, which was the first one in 17 years. And I was blessed to have an entire governing council unanimously agree that climate change, the fight against climate change, should be one of the considerations that we take when we determine monetary policy. So at least the European Central Bank is of the view that climate change is an important component in order to decide our monetary policy. Why is that? Because obviously climate change has an impact on price stability. I'll give you one very you know, simple example that happens in the financial sector actually. To guard against many of the climate change consequences that we will suffer, economic actors are going to have to take out much higher insurance coverage. Insurance premium will rise. Insurance companies will have to deploy their activity differently. And that's only an example from the financial sector. If I look at droughts, if I look at famine, if I look at the rising level of seas and so on and so forth, it will have an impact on agricultural production. It will have an impact on where people live. It will have an impact on not only the, the way we live, but the cost of living. And that clearly has to be embedded into the analysis that we conduct. Second observation, it does have an impact on the valuation of assets because climate change inflicts a risk on companies, on the assets that they hold, on the products that they produce, and this is not yet very well recorded at the moment. So one could argue that without proper disclosure and information about those risks, assets valuation for the moment are likely to be mispriced and poorly recorded from an accounting point of view. If you take into account um, future profits as well as uh, risks that apply. That's a second reason why climate change does have an impact because central banks, many of them, at least not all of them, but many of them hold corporate bonds. Are those assets well-priced? Should they be better identified together with the risk that they carry? That's a second reason. But having said that, I'm also very prepared to recognize that the key actors in the fight against climate change and the preservation of biodiversity are not central banks. There are parliaments, there are governments, there are regulators who have to decide and who have to convince their public opinion that these matters actually impact their life, must be taken into account. And as a result of that, some decisions, sometimes hard decisions have to be made, such as pricing carbon emissions, such as regulating the activity in ways that will make certain things more expensive. And that takes me to your second question. Can we arrive at that trade-off between fighting climate change, 
preserving biodiversity and yet securing enough growth to respond to legitimate demands of the population. And my first answer, Klaus, would be even before a way of life, we need life. If we don't preserve that in the medium term, we do have major threats on the horizon that could cause the death of hundreds of thousands of people. So I think that we have to think life first, we have to think way of life second, cost of life, and see how we can bring that together to make sure that we secure the first priority, which is life, we protect the way of life that people have, and we make sure that the cost of it is not so high for some people that they just cannot tolerate it. And I think that in that respect, the trade-off that we reach will probably require some redistribution because it is clear that the most exposed people, the less privileged people, are those that are going to need some help. We are addressing the big global challenges. And the third one, of course, is inequality, which needs urgent attention. The tendency towards more inequality was already with us before COVID and has been tremendously accelerated. How would you contribute to address this issue? I tend to believe for myself that central banks had to do what they had to do. And had they not put in place those massive um, plans of you know, liquidity supply and, and, and support, uh, we would have been in a worse off situation, which would have hurt more the less privileged and, and the, the most uh, exposed and the poorest people, because they would have been the first ones to lose out. So it's not to give us good conscience as central bankers, but I think that we have to deal, unfortunately, with counterfactuals. We will continue to support the economy. We will continue to guarantee and to procure price stability. We will continue to be focused on our mission. And that will not be enough to reduce inequalities. You know me, Klaus, I'm particularly attentive to the inequalities that are suffered by women and the fact that, uh, including during the COVID crisis, those that suffered most actually were women. They were the ones most exposed because they were in the caring, in the nursing, in the hospital sectors exposed to COVID. They were the ones on the front line in the lower skilled and lower paid jobs. And when the choice was between the man and the woman at home to stay at home, to look after the elderly or the young kids, it was often the woman who stayed at home. I'm convinced that when given the opportunity to reskill, to skill up, uh, to readjust into the economy, women will actually thrive and they will want to do that. You're listening to Radio Davos and we'll hear more from Christine Lagarde after this short break. Opportunity dances with those already on the dance floor. Lindy Weymatlati is the founder of Africa Teen Geeks, an NGO building a pipeline of tech leaders in Africa by teaching a new generation how to code. Lindy Way built this organization from scratch thanks to bootstrapping, cold calls, and dedication as she worked to change mindsets, curriculums, and bridge equity gaps. Lindy Way talked to Meet the Leader about making opportunity happen and how tech and entrepreneurship can reshape Africa. She also shared what she's learned from her own mentor, Google's Marion Croak, about being present and humble and how that helps her be a better mentor to a new generation of leaders. It doesn't matter who gets the credit as long as the work is done. I'm your host, Linda Lucina. Learn about all of this and more. 
on the next Meet the Leader. Welcome back to Radio Davos. Before the break, Christine Lagarde was talking about gender inequality. World Economic Forum founder and executive chairman Klaus Schwab asked her how that looked in the world of finance, where she is a rare example of a woman who's made it to the top. If you look at around the world banking system, only 3% of CEOs of banks are women. If we look at Europe and take into account banks and all financial institutions, less than 9% CEOs or presidents are women. That's an abysmally small number. If you consider on the other hand, that in the household at home, those who in most instances control finance are women. So there is that insidious um, chip on their shoulders that stops them from moving into finance and into banking and into the financial world in general. Not that they do badly when they go into that world, they do extremely well. And there have been studies to show that when women are in the trade, they are better uh, risk assessors and their performance are at least equal to that those of, of men. So what trigger would it take for them to go into finance? Honestly, I don't know. I think just like in other sectors, it's going to be a combination of self-confidence, badly needed, role models in very short uh, supply at the moment, and we need to continue working on that, education, And uh, I think on that particular front, again, there should be uh, scholarships, there should be support, there should be special uh, incentives put in place in order to encourage young girls to go into math, to go into sciences in general, because they are underrepresented later on in life in finance, but also in technology, but also in economics. We at, at the European Central Bank, now we have a special scholarship that we've put in place for women to go into PhD in those, you know, regarded as male dominated areas, such as macroeconomics or finance. And it works. We are really recruiting exceptionally talented uh, women because we cannot have a world where half the population is represented by only 3% uh, of, of those 50%. What are your greatest learnings? I mean, you, you are a woman who made it to the top of the IMF, uh, it's the French economy, and now to the EBC. What would you tell women that they can make the progress they deserve in spite of still prevailing systemic discrimination we face of women? I'm sorry to say, but I think it's love that was most helpful to me. Because the love that I received from, from parents, family, um, husbands, children, has actually given me the confidence uh, to ignore some of the noises that I heard along the way. And, and, and confidence matters enormously. You know, when you shift from one area of work to another area of work, you think to yourself, can I actually do it? And women often ask themselves, can I do it? Men rarely do. They take the challenge, they go with it. 
they don't prepare so much, but they don't doubt themselves to begin with. In many instances, women doubt themselves to begin with. And I've spoken to many, many of them. So I'd say, I, I won't say love is the way, but, but love is one good nutrient for confidence, which itself is, is critical in order to take risks. And, and yes, I did take risk in my life, professionally. As you know, to my particular concern as having coined this notion of the fourth industrial revolution is how do we use technologies uh, to the benefit of mankind? And here, how do we cooperate together on a global level? I want to, uh, let's say, focus on one aspect of the fourth industrial revolution, digital currencies, decentralized digital currencies. We have seen the race of Bitcoin, of SNM of uh, Ripple and so on. What is your stance actually on decentralized currencies? Can they contribute to financial uh, stability or are they a threat? You have suggested uh, that the ECB might create a digital currency in the next four years. What would be actually the benefits of such a move and what could be the pitfalls of such a move? Mm. And how would it strengthen the, or weaken the position of the euro uh, on a global level? I wish we had another hour to ourselves, Klaus, for that one. Yeah. But I'll try to zoom in a few things. Number one, I think that all cryptocurrencies, alleged to be cryptocurrencies, are not currencies at all. They are uh, speculative assets, the valuation of which changes enormously over the course of time. And they present themselves as currencies, which they are not. So I think that we should all in the financial sector and at the regulatory level, call a spade a spade. An asset is an asset, has to be regulated as such, has to be supervised by the asset regulators and supervisors, but should not claim that it is a currency. It is not. Second category, is stable coins. And those are devices that have been invented by some of the uh, big um, technology companies. Facebook is certainly a leading example. There are many others around as well. And stable coins are pretending to be a coin, uh, but in fact, it's completely associated with an actual currency. For instance, some of them are saying that they will be, they can be used for transactions, but their value will be exactly aligned to the dollar, for instance. Fine, but again, let's call a spade a spade. If it is so, then it has to also guarantee to those holding coins that they can exchange those coins for dollar, and therefore those coin issuers should have to back up their coins as many dollars as they have coins that needs to be checked, supervised, regulated, so that consumers and users of those devices can actually be guaranteed against potential misrepresentation. Very recent history has showed that those reserve currencies were not always available and as liquid as they were intended to be. Third is the digital currencies that the Central Bank of China has been experimenting upon for the last seven years, that the ECB has decided to experiment upon for the next two years be before it makes final decision to go ahead with it, 
which the Bank of England is looking at with the same kind of approach and which the Fed will soon be uh, issuing a paper about to determine which way it goes. At the European Central Bank, we believe that we should be ready and have the technology available in order to respond to uh, customer demands. If customers prefer to use digital currency rather than have banknotes and cash available, it should be available. And we should respond to that demand and make sure that we have a solution that is European-based, that is secure, that is uh, available under friendly terms, that can be used as a mean of payment at reasonable terms as well, and does not jeopardize the whole banking system, which should be part and parcel of the proposal. So that's the reason why we've decided to go ahead with a two years experiment uh, to make sure that we can actually respond to that demand. Availability, just as cash is available and will continue to be available, but it will be a consumer's preference. Safety and security of the device, uh, user friendliness, uh, cheap cost, and ways of transacting business that will be recognized and accepted, not only in the euro area, but around the world. Thank you, Christine. Central banks are considered to be a very ab abstract uh, institution which doesn't affect our lives only in indirect ways. But I think you have shown that it is very important to have leadership of central banks with the possibilities they have also to make this world a better world. And I think you, you take here a lead for improving the state of the world. Thank you so much, Klaus. Christine Lagarde was speaking with Klaus Schwab. You can see an edited transcript of their conversation at wf.ch slash podcasts, where you can also find previous editions of Radio Davos and all our other podcasts. Please subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or review and join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club. Look for that on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was written and presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with thanks to Alex Court. Studio production was by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back next week, but for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.